This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is called The War on Renewables. With headlines like The Lobbyist War on Wind Energy and Shorten to Bring Failed Green Tax Back from the Dead, Carbon Zombies, I'm starting to have nightmares. I'd like to see a headline like Bronwyn Bishop, Carbon Footprint Shock, Helicopter Trips Blow Parliamentarians' Carbon Budget, but I'm dreaming. To keep me more level-headed, I have three wonderful guests tonight. Uh, I have the cool-headed financier Oliver Yates from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and then the Honourable Mark Butler, who might tell us what's on offer at the ALP conference next weekend. But first we have a passionate defender of solar power and who is prepared to really fight for it, John Grimes. Are you there, John? Yeah, hi, Vivian. Hello, John. Hello, Vivian. John Grimes started his career as an officer in the Air Force, and now he heads the Australian Solar Council. He's the Australian's... um, (coughs) He's usually talking up solar power on the BZE show, but tonight we are in a war zone. Welcome, John. He's here. Hi. I can't hear him. Can you hear me now? Is that any better? Okay, that's better. I can't hear you through the headphones. I can only hear you in the studio. But look, I'm glad, okay. I'm glad that you have that Air Force background because we have a real battle on our hands protecting the renewable energy industry, which is our major weapon to slow down climate change. So how do you see it? Well, uh, Vivian, as your listeners would probably know, there are three really important building blocks for promoting the transition to a renewable future in Australia. This is federal government policy The first of those is the renewable energy target. This drives us to achieve a certain amount of input from renewables. The second is the organisation that does uh, funding for research and development, pulls new renewable technology through, right from the laboratory test bench through to the first sort of commercial scale applications and, uh, uh, and, uh, and supporting programs. That's the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. And thirdly, there's a green bank called the Clean Energy Finance Corporation that does the financial engineering to help renewable projects actually be financed. And unfortunately, we've seen a federal government led by Prime Minister Tony Abbott who have conducted a concerted attack on all of those three pillars to, to, to roll.
roll them back as far as humanly possible. So for our industry, we say that this is an existential threat, that we have uh, a Prime Minister with very clear intent, uh, who has at the heart of his policy agenda uh, stripping down uh, these major building blocks. And so we think that if we don't speak out, uh, then in the future they could be lost altogether. Well, listeners would perhaps learn a bit more about that if they read the Saturday paper for the 18th of July. And you are quoted on the front page saying, if Abbott continues this way, we are finished. We know that solar and other renewables are competing with coal and Abbott is intent on protecting that industry. Um, How would you start mobilising people and public opinion? Well, I I think, you know, the the sense of this radio station has it right that a community grassroots action can be potent and can actually change government direction. And so we've begun working in key federal marginal seats around the country uh, to raise the issue that, uh, that our sector is absolutely under threat. And we've had a fantastic result. So in seven marginal seats from Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales uh, and South Australia, we've had hundreds of people turn out in local electorates to send a clear message to the federal government that the community does not support this attack on renewables. They want to see a bright, clean energy future. They want to see the jobs of, of the future. They want big infrastructure projects, big renewable projects. They want stronger local economies, particularly in rural and regional Australia. And they want lower power bills. And the great thing is that renewables can deliver all of that. Uh, and so by ma- mobilising the mainstream, we can, we can really be potent and potentially uh, you know, uh, shift uh, significant votes in the upcoming federal election. Uh, and therefore, the federal government either changes its policy or it real, loses, you know, faces real risk of actually, you know, um, uh, losing seats. Well, in that article, uh, Tony Woods from the Grattan Institute said that your comments about Abbott protecting coal were bullshit. I think this is a Berlin Wall moment. Uh, what do you say? Well, look, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's interesting. People all over the quest, all over the country ask me, but why, John? You know, that is, they see this as just plain common sense. And, uh, look, all, all I know is the sense I get is that the federal government has stood alongside the big incumbent companies, the big power company mm. and the big mining companies. That's where the vested interests have exerted considerable influence and they're the people that, that the Prime Minister and this federal government wants to protect. Uh, we think that's really disappointing because we think that the federal government should be on the side of ordinary consumers, of ordinary people uh, who face ever-spiralling electricity bills. We think they should be on the side of small business who are creating the jobs and transforming the economy by rolling solar out across the country. Uh, We think that they should be on the side of consumer choice and competition and not locking people into uh, an outdated electricity model that doesn't give them that choice or freedom. So uh, we're perplexed. Um, you know, why would the government do this? But that, that is, uh, uh, you know, the, the answer that seems most clear to us. Yeah, well, later on this, in this hour, we're going to talk to Mark Butler. I pre-recorded that interview and he wouldn't give me an ideological answer. I said to him, you know, what does he make of it? <clears throat> a lot of people are saying, you know, well, it's the Heartland Foundation or these think tanks that have made so much about climate denial, you know, common knowledge. 
and uh, the IPA in Australia, you know, they seem to get into people's minds. And it seems so crazy for a Liberal government, which is meant to be for business, to be crushing the business opportunities of this new industry in Australia, the renewable energy industry. I just don't get that. Do you think it's an ideological thing? Because it seems to be going against, really, their best interests. The, the transformation of uh, the Australia's electricity network to a low-carbon network of the future is probably the biggest business opportunity this country's ever seen, notwithstanding what we need to do in, in agriculture, in transportation, in manufacturing. So in, in, ele- in static electricity alone, uh, there are huge opportunities as we get a smart, intuitive and green electricity system in place. So, you know, wh- why wouldn't our leaders um, see, the, see the future and help take us to that place instead of shackling us to the past, talking always about the interests of the coal industry? Um, uh, you know, just, it, it just doesn't make any sense. So mm. we're perplexed. I think the people of Australia are perplexed. But one thing we know for sure, their ruthless determination to do whatever it takes to close this industry down is real, palpable, and if we don't stand up against it, then it, then it will ultimately succeed. Well, it seems almost that it should be illegal too. I mean, if they were trying to close down the cigarette industry, I'd understand, but they're, they're not. They're trying to close down something that is obviously for the common good. And um, later we're also going to speak to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation with Oliver Yates, and he's a very cool customer. He's, you know, working with the government. He's being reasonable and diplomatic. Yet, like the renewable energy target, as you say, they're they're absolutely deliberately trying to crush them, and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is on the chopping board as well. So have you got any more to say about it? Yeah, look, um, uh, you know, um, the, the, the future really lies in ordinary Australians taking back power. And, and uh, if you, if you um, poll Australians, you'll find that more than 90% of them support a renewable future. Uh, more than 75% think the renewable energy target is right or should be increased. This cuts right across party lines. You know, our constituency, we're a peak industry group. You know, we're the peak body for the solar industry in Australia. Our, our member organisations are traditionally mum and dad businesses. They're sparkies. They've got a couple of vans and a couple of apprentices. Uh, they are naturally conservative people. And they're uh, servicing a demographic which is also naturally conservative. Many self-funded retirees, uh, people who are taking out cost of living insurance, by putting solar on their roof. And I can tell you the customers are perplexed, the business is complex, we're perplexed. Now, why would the government go in this direction? So it is the wrong direction for Australia, um, but I think by standing up and actually taking a stand, that's how we will turn it around. You know, I I was so uh, heartwarmed, Vivian, as we went around the country to marginal seats. Mm. In many electorates, we were mobilising five and 600 people at dinner time, in the middle of the week, in winter time, to come out and, and, and have their voice heard on this issue. And many of those federal seats are, are held by a margin of less than 500. If 500 people change their vote on this issue, the seat would change. This is a vote changer. 
this is a seat changer. This could be a government changer. So, um, you know, that, that's where that's where the hope springs from. Well, I think you're on the money there because I went to one of those forums at Ramsgate RSL and uh, Christine Milne spoke, Mark Butler, Bill Shorten and yourself were there. There were a few other speakers and it was a vibrant audience. They were these small businesses you've talked about and I could see how enthusiastic they were. They're just rearing at the bit to get ahead and get away from these limiting targets. And I um, thought that there was the empty chair was always there. And apparently in the other forums there was the empty chair. Why was the Liberal stand, you know, the local member, so frightened to come up and face that audience? Well, they are frightened because they know that solar, that renewables are popular. I think there are many people in the backbench of the government who are just as perplexed as the rest of us. And so our message to those people is clear. This is not about party political ideology. This is about good solar policy. We'll support any party that supports good solar policy, whether that be the Greens, whether it be Labor, or whether it be the Palm United Party that has been instrumental in stopping some of these draconian um, bills mm. passing through the Senate, so actually protecting mm. the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, protecting ARENA, protecting the rat. So mm. those, those organisations that support solar will get our support. Mm. So it's not inevitable that the Liberal Party needs to be in this policy position. Um, it, it, is, it, it is doing them enormous damage, and I would recommend that they move quickly. But if they don't, then we are determined to exert whatever pressure we can to move them if needs, you know, um, through, through, through an election. Yeah. Well, look, I, I can see that you, you're a strategic fighter and I appreciate the fight you've put up for the renewable energy target and your organisation so it is a battle, I think we've been bogged down so far in small skirmishes over targets and we're going to get more of that at the Paris Climate Conference with more skirmishing and I dread to think of what Australia will put on the table in Paris but I like a quote from your website, it was uh, from someone in Ikea and it says a 100% goal is easier than a 90% goal because when you go for 90% everyone in the company finds a way to be in the 10%. And I think with two degrees of warming clearly in sight, uh, that's what we should be going to. What do you say? Oh, look, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's no doubt that Australia, the world, needs to move and move quickly. Uh, this is a serious situation. But I also know that we need to bring the people through the politics of this with us on that journey. And so to be out there, you know, arguing for job creation, utility projects, lower power bills, a stronger economy, then we're actually bringing everybody with us. And at the same time, we know modelling shows us from climate work that a 50% renewable energy target by 2030 will deliver an emissions reduction uh, dividend of between 20 and 25% on its own without any other policy measure. So if you like, that, that, that I think is a potent argument because you disarm those that say, look, you just want to re take us backwards. You just want to uh, destroy the economy. Well, no, we're saying exactly the opposite. And so I think, you know, the framing of this debate is important uh, and we need to make it something that everybody can sign up to and take as many people with us as possible. Thank you very much, John. Thank you really for contributing to the program and keep up your good work. Thank you, Vivian. Master nice talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was John Grimes. He's the CEO of the Australian Solar Council, and he'll be speaking at the ALB conference on Saturday. 
I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. We're speaking to Oliver Yates tonight. He's the CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. We're here to find out how they are promoting the transition to clean energy and what they're up against. So welcome, Oliver. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation is called by the press a $10 billion green investment bank, yet it looks like your investments were down by about 45% this year. What has got in your way? Well, really, it's a, it's a matter of us responding to, to market signals. I mean, as you know, the, the market last year um, was a bit depressed on the renewable side because people were uncertain of the outcome uh, of the renewable energy target. And uh, as such, uh, the, the level of investment from the CEFC was also, uh, was also reduced. But, but that being said, we still had quite an exciting year because it enabled us to do some really uh, innovative transactions and it also gave us the opportunity to, to expand into much much more rapidly into the energy efficiency space, which is another very important part of our mandate. Well, yes, that's, I'd like you to tell us about some of those energy efficiency projects which have saved emissions, and I think they've saved dollars too. Well, they all, uh, they all save dollars and they all save emissions, and that's, uh, that's the reason why they make such good. So you may have uh, been aware from, from last year we put together a, a large program with the Commonwealth Bank, but, um, but this year we've complemented that with uh, what's called the Energy Efficiency Bonus Program, which is done with National Australia Bank, uh, and that enables um, people uh, and, and commercial customers uh, to go to their local National Australia Bank and, uh, and seek out discounted finance rates at approximately 70 basis points below the NAB normal finance rates to, uh, to make pro- uh, profitable investments in cars and refrigeration, irrigation systems, new solar PV systems, building upgrades, lightings, all that type of stuff. And in addition, you've probably seen a lot of advertising from, from Origin out there for their, their solar as a service program is what it's called, um, and they're providing solar and potential uh, battery storage solutions through, uh, through uh, PPA programs so customers can now get uh, solar systems installed on their, on their offices and, and on their homes uh, with no money down. So there's some really big, big opportunities there, and, and that generally comes with a, with a 12-year financing term, which means that the savings that you make out of those, uh, those uh, transactions are actually more expensive, uh, much more cheaper than the, than the financing cost. Yeah, well, efficiency always seems to be in the background, and I would like you to uh, spell it out because it's not as exciting to look at, say, as a great big new wind farm, but, you know, what sort of efficiencies could really cut down or give us an example of a company that might have cut down their bills and their emissions? Well, look, let's see a couple of examples, but our experience, you know how, Vivian, you can only get about, you know, if you're lucky, 3% by putting money in the bank these days. Mm. Um, We're seeing people invest in their own businesses where generally the savings are north of 30% per annum. So, you know, there are good examples of transactions. You know, one, for example, was, uh, you know, all that playground, all that wonderful playground of equipment, which is brightly coloured, is made by a company called Global Roto Mouldings. And... um, and uh, we provided them with finance so that they could buy uh, new ovens uh, so that they could actually make sure that they could mould that plastic uh, a, lot, a lot more cheaply. 
Uh, and the energy savings there were, uh, were very significant for that customer and ensured that the customer could actually compete effectively on a longer term basis. There are good examples everywhere, but what we're seeing is that you can get a very rapid payback period from investments in refrigeration, uh, very, very quick savings obviously from investments in LED lighting, uh, very solid savings for investments uh, in, in new air conditioning, and really what, customer, what people need to do is they need to walk out and have a look in their shed or look at the equipment that they've got and if it's more than about 10 or 12 years old then then really they're sitting on an opportunity to invest to um, invest to save uh, to save money which is a, a much better investment than actually putting their uh, their money uh, their money in the bank yes well I had an example I was interviewing some doctors because doctors are very much about climate change the impact of climate change really on the health system is going to be huge already is huge but they said um, the Mater Health System, apparently there's a large number of hospitals involved in that, and they just looked at their vehicle fleet, and they weren't yeah. actually able to get electric vehicle ambulances, but they could get low, you know, low emissions sort of vehicles, and they were making a lot of money out of just reinventing their fleet. Yeah, well, that's that's one area where we've been targeting. So Australia is is way behind in terms of uh, efficiency, in terms of carbon efficiency, if you want to view, in terms of market vehicle fleets. And, and uh, so we've recently announced a program with with FirstMac, which is a, a vehicle securitisation program, which focuses on low emission vehicles. So what we're trying to do is again make sure that when people are out there making a decision between one asset and another asset, that um, if they make a sensible asset that saves them money, which is the right thing to do, and save the environment, the environmental costs, then actually there's an additional incentive that they can show to their uh, their boss or their finance director to say, well, I'm doing it and I'm even getting a lower cost loan. So mm. it's not only saving them money in terms of their own energy or petrol costs, it's saving the environment cost and they're actually being rewarded through our programs, with, um, w- which we've now got established with the Commonwealth Bank, with National Australia Bank, uh, with FirstMac and, 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 also, um, and also now, as we mentioned, mentioned this, this program. We've got a solar facility available also with Energy Matters and, and this program with Origin. So mm-hmm. what we've tried diligently to do, uh, Vivian, is to make sure that, that those people who want to act responsibly and invest uh, in a better outcome for themselves and a better outcome for the planet are, are being rewarded for doing it. Yeah, well, look, I know you're working diligently and I'm amazed and happy that you're still in business, but, you know, because we interviewed you more than a year ago and there's been threats and threats, but People are now saying that the government is at war with renewable energy and there's a company called First Solar which apparently has built most of Australia's big solar projects and they were quoted in the paper saying there's a high perception of risk in Australia pushing up the cost of equity and finance. Is this how you see it for big projects? Well, to, to make a return out of a very large project, it means you need to take a very long view on future revenue that that project will produce. So it doesn't matter what industry uh, anybody is investing in. If you're making long-term investment decisions, then having long-term policy certainty enables you to better predict the future revenue that that, uh, that, that project will actually earn. So it's the same all the world over and it's the same in any industry, but uh, if there is uncertainty out there as to what will happen in the future which is out of a business's control, such as a policy a policy risk is often out of the business's control, then people have to take that risk into consideration and they charge and they charge more for it because if I can 
you know, build a, you know, a solar facility in one country where I don't have that uncontrolled risk uh, and then I build it in a different country and I do have that uncontrolled risk, then obviously I'm going to charge more to take the risk where, uh, where, where, where I can't control the risk. So, so, you know, Jack Curtis, I think, would have been expressing a normal, practical, commercial reality that uh, if, uh, if you're investing into a higher risk environment, you will want a higher return for doing that. Yes, well, it's bad, really, that the risk is coming from the government. You know, the government's creating this uh, chancy sort of future for renewable industries. But I would think that there's a risk for anyone investing in the coal industry as well, even though they say they'll be going on for 30 years at least. You know, there'll be a demand for coal. But wouldn't you say that that sort of investment is also risky? Well, definitely. I mean, and I think, and I think you will see that, um, that investors are requiring a, a higher return if they were to invest in, in that industry. So risk is... Ap- absolutely normal part of of investing but if you want to encourage investment in an area then you are likely to encourage it by decreasing the amount of risk that business faces so it's just you know risk is a normal part of business but if I give you the choice Vivian of investing in um, you know government bonds or investing in uh, junk bonds I'm sure you're going to say well I'll take the lower return from government bonds because there's lower risk risk than the higher return from uh, from the junk bonds and, and we're trying to encourage uh, investors to come to Australia and we're trying to encourage Australian pension fan, funds and, and individuals to invest in a clean energy future and uh, to enable that to happen we need to, to minimise uh, minimise the risk involved in investing in that asset class. Well, could you just give a, a brief response to the recent threats to your um, integrity, I think, to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation by the government? You're trying to change the shift the goalposts or change the criteria. Well, I mean, they're just, they're just normal matters of discussion. We, we, this, this, this whole point, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, yeah. about our investment mandate, but, but this is the second time we've ever received a direction from the government. The government actually uh, has been uh, very um, sensible, stable and really predictable in relation to the CEFC over the last few years. And it is their right to direct us um, in accordance with the investment mandate from time to time. And there is a lot of excitement about uh, how that direction Direction um, could apply, but, but we have to go through a normal process with the government, and, it, and, and, and they will have different views as to, to what they think would be a priority of investment. So it's really within their right. Um, it's a discussion that we're having uh, with the government, um, and we'll get better at it as we go through, you know, direction number three and direction number four, and, and that's an ordinary, ordinary way that um, the CEFC has been established. It's all provided for under our Act. I really love talking to you, Oliver, because you always have such a sensible response, and you're not a panic merchant, despite all the headlines that are screaming about this. Well, there are a lot of. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I must say, pe- people are um, quite quite vocal and um, and concerned um, about aspects of this. But um, we really haven't seen. I mean, we, from our own side, um, however much noise there is, uh, we've got a you know a solid working relationship uh, with the government, and and uh, in the circumstances that it applies, that we just continue on doing what uh, we're doing as if it's business as usual and following the act yes. in accordance to its its rules and 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 how we all learn about those rules on the way mm. through because mm. it is new. It, it's not, and we haven't had a development bank or a, a green bank in Australia before, and mm. how we all understand our own legislation 
takes a little bit of work. And as I said, this is only the second time we've received direction and we'll all get better at it and all get yes. smoother as we go forward. Okay. Well, look, I really liked reading your website about some of the innovative schemes you have promoted. One was a copper mine in Western Australia, which, you know, is paying a huge amount of money for diesel fuel. And, you're, you know, I'd like you to tell that to the listeners. But I was wondering about... Are some of these projects that are applicable to remote areas being considered in terms of international business, you know, that we could implement those projects in poorer countries, in off-grid areas, remote villages, for example, things like that one you told me last year about the growing tomatoes in the yeah. arid area. You know, like I sort of feel there's an international aid or international application of some of these projects. Could you just tell us about some of those things in remote areas? Well, look, there is actually an international application of this, and I think the best way to think about it is that um, if um, you were looking at telephones today, uh, you wouldn't be going to a developing country that didn't have telephones and saying, hey, guys, you've got to string up lines and you've got to plug them into the wall. You'd actually be putting in mobile stations. And that's where we are really with electricity, is that if you don't have a developed electricity system in a country or it's unstable and going to go through growth, then you have the option to string up a whole bundle of lines, which is basically like looking through the rear vision mirror and building great big decentralised coal-fired power stations, which mm. is a bit like saying we would be stringing up again the old telephone lines, or you can say, no, you don't need to do that anymore. You can actually harness renewable sources on site and, uh, and store them. So the, the project that we've just done uh, over at a copper mine um, is from our side, it was a, a $15 million investment, but overall the project was, was much larger than that. It was, a, it was about a $40 million project in total. But what it did for once is it uh, was designed to dispel the theory that, that if you need uh, power for most of the day uh, in, a, in, a, in a commercial operation, then it is difficult to have renewables do that. So this was combining 34,000 uh, solar panels in an array with a 6 megawatt battery to enable the mine to, you know, not just doing air conditioning or not just lights here, but actually grind ore up. So the major industrial processes were all being produced and all being driven by renewable energy being driven by the panels and by the battery storage. Now, that's the good part about that because it's showing how solar can integrate very effectively with, you know, quite volatile loads and how you're able to, uh, in that case, they're saving about 5 million, li million litres of diesel a year. Um, but at, at this stage, by removing their daytime energy consumption and replacing it with a renewable battery combination. And it's a good step towards proving up to people that um, uh, renewables are able to provide stable long-term sources of, of energy in, in, as an alternative to any of the other forms that are out there. The old business, as like the old telephone that's plugged into the wall, it's almost over. It's almost over. Um, mobile phones are here and renewable energy is here. Can you see the real energy revolution that we need to have in the view of climate change? Can you see that happening without some mechanism to force out coal-fired power? Yeah, it's amazing in all other industries we've required people to adopt to the latest technology. And, and the good example to think of here is aircraft. You know, aircraft that are 40 years old because of their noise or even 20 years old because of their noise are not allowed to fly into Sydney Airport. 
because people said they weren't willing to put up with the old technology anymore. Uh, the coal industry hasn't been required to update itself. Our power stations are all nearly 30 to 40 years old. Mm. There is a big investment uh, a, a challenge coming along. So without, without someone actually saying, look, it's not good enough, uh, you need to improve your environmental performance and, yeah. uh, and update your facilities or adopt renewable energy technology, then it's difficult to see you know, those old facilities necessarily turning themselves off. They, they, right. they make money because they're fully depreciated already. Yeah. And so without government policy, they're unlikely. And a government or an environmental policy like the EPA taking their responsibility mm. seriously to protect the environment, then, uh, then it's unlikely they'll be turned off. Oh, thank you very much, Oliver. I'd like to thank you for building such a sensible organisation as the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and also for standing firm, despite the difficult sort of ideological battle that seems to be going on around us. Tonight we're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. It's called The War on Renewables. And so far we've heard John Grimes from the Australian uh, Solar Council and Oliver Yates has just spoken to us from Clean Energy Finance. The next speaker is Mark Butler after the break. He's from uh, the ALP and he's speaking at a conference on Saturday about solar. But I've tried to get him to put out his um, game plan for the conference, but he's not going to reveal it on air. But it's a most interesting interview. So stay tuned after the break for Mark Butler. Get lost in science. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. Mark Butler is the new National President for the ALP and Federal Shadow Minister for the Environment. He's also the member for Port Adelaide. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Vivian. Mark, we've heard from John Grimes and Oliver Yates, and there does seem to be a war on renewable energy at the moment. Rather than us all pulling together to slow down the climate disruption that we've created, we're fighting over targets and carbon levers And I think hopes are very high for this ALP conference coming up next weekend. And I'd like to know from you just some words of inspiration about... I'd like to hear from you something about a courageous climate policy that might emerge and to inspire Australians, most of whom are pretty worried about climate change, but also that would show the way forward for mining workers. Well, it is an enormously frustrating position we find ourselves in. Uh, Only the year before last, Australia was one of the four most attractive countries to invest in the world in renewable energy, along with the powerhouses of Germany, China and the United States. And in that very short time, we've seen investment plummet in renewable energy uh, and, as you say, attack after attack from the Prime Minister on various renewable energy policies. Now, we thought we had some confidence restored in the industry a few weeks ago when the Parliament uh, reinforced the renewable energy target, but then last week we saw an inexplicable attack on the work of the Clean Energy 
energy finance corporation, a corporation which, like its uh, its comparator green banks around the world, in the US, in Europe, and China, and many other countries, does so much work to nurture a mature lending market for renewable energy industry. So we are facing a very frustrating situation where uh, a government seems utterly committed to making sure that the strong, bold climate action that we need as a country and we see in so many of the nations we're close to in the Northern Hemisphere but also in our own region, uh, we see enormous frustration there. I've interviewed miners who vote for the Labour Party and they would love to see a transition plan for green jobs. I've also interviewed landowners who vote National Party and they want to see their water and their land protected and you're Minister for Water as well as for the Environment. And there are Liberals of the sort of old Malcolm Fraser sort of brand who can't believe what they call one-term Tony who's doing to the new renewable industry, you know, to business and jobs. But it seems to me that both Labor and the Coalition are wedded to the old royalties coming in from mining and the jobs. And they all say they know climate change is real, but why won't anyone say no new coal mines or no more fossil fuel subsidies? Well, I think under the last Labor government's policies, we did start to see the market mechanism of an emissions trading scheme or a carbon pricing mechanism start to work. In just the first year, for example, of our policy in 2012-2013, electricity sector emissions, for the first time in anyone's memory, started to come down. And that was because there was a 25% increase in the share that renewable energy held of the national electricity market. And the the other side of that coin, of course, is that you started to see very substantial reductions in the share of the NEM, the national electricity market, uh, occupied particularly by brown coal, but also by black coal. We know these are the policies that work. You put in place a cap on carbon pollution that applies across the country, that reduces over time in accordance with our international commitments. And you will start to see the emergence of a much cleaner way of operating. And this is more important for Australia than perhaps any other country I can think of because we are the the heaviest polluting economy in the OECD per head of population. We produce more carbon pollution than any other OECD nation. Uh, We're also a very intensive, emissions intensive economy per unit of GDP. So we have a lot of work to do to make sure that Australia does its fair share in ensuring that the global warming that we've seen underway for some time does not exceed two degrees Celsius beyond pre-industrial levels. Mm. Well, Professor Will Stephan from the Climate Council uh, said in a recent thing about the Galilee Basin, he said we must have no new coal mines because, you know... The coal exported from that, and and I could add to that the Liverpool Plains and also the Hunter Valley, that coal exported will just put us on a trajectory to four degrees of warming. We're not going to meet that under 22 degrees target. And, you know, the people are very anguished about this, and it seems to me that still nobody will say no more fossil fuel subsidies, even that, there's a first step, and then no new coal mines. Well, Professor Stefan raises a very important point that, that unfortunately is still in contention here in, in Australia. Uh, the two degrees uh, limit on global warming was, as your listeners would know, uh, signed up to by pretty much every country on the face of the earth at the yeah. Cancun conference in 2010. And Tony Abbott uh, indicated at the time and has indicated since that that was a bipartisan position here in Australia. 
But if you look at the energy white paper that the government released earlier this year, it contemplates a, a situation in our energy and resources market that is consistent with what the International Energy Agency says is a four-degree warming scenario. So on the one hand, you have the Prime Minister tipping his hat to a two-degree limit uh, in line with the Cancun Agreement. But on the other hand, you see energy policies from this government that are consistent with a four-degree warming scenario, which, uh, as all of the experts tell you, and as I'm sure your listeners know, would be quite a catastrophic level of warming, not just for Australia, but around the world. Mm. Well, look, people have fun saying one-term Tony in that, but already it seems to be that they've done enough damage that we, we can hardly recoup it. And that's why I'm trying to get you to say something about fossil fuel subsidies or no new mines. But maybe this will come out at the ALP conference on Saturday. But let's talk about the media because I'm, I was very shocked by recent you know, headlines. It's just been getting worse and worse. But the cover of the Daily Telegraph in Sydney last week said showed Gillard, Rudd and Shorten as zombies coming out of a grave, which was the carbon tax, which will not rest in peace. And some people say, well, Labor's running scared. And I really feel sorry for you having to combat this sort of rubbish. But... I would like to know how will Labor engage with voters, you know, the voters who read the Daily Telegraph and who are scared. How will you engage with those people to make them brave and forward-thinking to resist this scare campaigning? And, you know, we still have to cut emissions. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, but it was a ridiculous overreach by the Daily Telegraph. Their front page was um, was just bordered on, on silliness. And and some commentators over the last few days have continued to try to perpetuate this idea that an emissions trading scheme with a, a hard cap on carbon pollution is the same thing as a carbon tax. And any economist, any climate expert will tell you they are very different policies. And emissions trading schemes are the model not only that we see in some of our oldest trading partners in North America and Europe, but increasingly we see also in our own region, South Korea, our third largest export partner started theirs this year. Uh, and uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, China is in the process of, of uh, adding to its pilot schemes to form a national scheme. So we're not going to run scared from this debate. We, we said two years ago that we, would, um, that we would stick with emissions trading as our policy. It's obviously only one lever in the policy suite for climate policy. We also need to have a strong renewable energy ambition. Uh, we've said uh, previously that we're, we'll be looking to vehicle emission standards. We've got lots of good work that's been done by the Climate Change Authority and other bodies uh, to look at ways in which we can bring down emissions in the transport sector as well. So we know that we'll face a scare campaign from Tony Abbott. We know we'll face a scare campaign from some in the media. Uh, we are utterly committed, though, to arguing the case for strong and sensible policy in this area. And we will need to take that case directly to the Australian people. We, we can't rely on some organs of the media to present a balanced uh, reportage of this policy area. We know that through bitter experience over the last few years. But mm. I can tell you, once we start to roll out the details of our policy, as we've worked through them with our colleagues and also with stakeholders, uh, we will not be shy about having those discussions very openly, very directly with the Australian people. Uh, we're speaking to the Honourable Mark Butler. He's the Shadow Minister for the Environment and Water. Mark, it's not just the tabloids who want us to adopt timid renewable energy targets. I read about the CFMEU's Tony Ma, uh, who has said that a 
renewable energy target would increase the cost of electricity for manufacturing and households and that it would be a poor tool to reduce our global warming emissions. So, look, this thing about workers who have, are invested in the carbon economy, you represent a lot of them, I would think, and you need to give some guidance to them about the green jobs. I've been to these you know, public hearings where Rio Tinto versus the little town of Bolga just recently up in Singleton, and worker after worker went up and said they didn't want to lose their entitlements and their jobs. But if someone could break, circuit break there and show you know, how these mines are just not, don't have a future and reskilling those people is what's, what it's all about. That's what I'd like to hear about the way forward from you. Well, uh, well, can I say that Tony Marr and his division of the CFMEU have been more deeply engaged in this climate debate than really anyone in the Labor movement for the best part of three decades almost now. Uh, they've been attending uh, the global summits since the Rio summit, which was, I don't know, 25 years ago almost, and have been very, very deeply engaged in this debate. We're very important stakeholders as Greg Combe uh, developed the clean energy future package in the last term of government. Now, of course, they represent members who work in the electricity generation industry as it currently exists. And I can tell you I've got a very big baseload power station in my electorate in Port Adelaide and a couple of peaking stations. So I understand uh, very clearly the, the issues that are at play in those workplaces. I also come from a state, South Australia, that has been an extraordinary performer in renewable energy development. Yes. We've had, we've had mm-hmm. days, a number of days, over the last 12 or 18 months where more than 100% of our electricity demand has been generated from renewable sources, our wind power and our very high levels of penetration of rooftop solar. So what we have is an electricity industry in transition. Some of that is, to, is, is driven by climate policy and the need to decarbonise electricity. But some of it, frankly, I think would be happening even if there were not a climate problem, even if there were not a concern about carbon pollution. The, the, inc- the expansion of technology that distributes energy away from these big baseload power stations to people's homes or to rooftops of small, medium-sized businesses is just changing the face of the electricity industry before our very eyes. And I think the important thing for us to do is to start to pull those different strands of electricity policy together, not just see you know, them in different silos, if you like. And also, as Tony Marr will say, and any other representative of workers in an industry, we need to be very conscious of the impact that these transitions have on workers in those industries, particularly given that those industries are often located in regions away from the major cities where there might be more alternative job options. Now, this is not just a challenge in the current economic climate in the electricity industry. I represent parts of Adelaide that are very heavily impacted by the closure of uh, Holden's and mm. a range of other car supply companies. Mm. This, this really is very important work for the Labor Party and for a Labor government. I think we've shown over the past several decades that when these very significant industry transitions uh, confront Australia, uh, that uh, really is the Labor Party that, that is able to pull together a range of different strategies that ensure Australia gets the most out of those new technologies. Yeah. Well, look, now I'd like to talk about the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. We had Oliver Yates earlier. Um, the Sun-Herald headline, his another Murdoch paper, was PM fans war on wind power. 
But uh, I understand Labor agreed to a lower renewable energy target to break the deadlock. But now, as you said before, and Tony Abbott is attacking the Clean Energy Finance Corporation investments in the very wind and solar projects we need before we phase out coal-fired power. Can you tell us what's really at play here? People talk about ideology, but what's really at play? Well, that requires me to dig into Tony Abbott's mind, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that. But, uh, but you know, the, the government has tried to abolish the Clean Energy Finance Corporation through the parliament now on a couple of occasions. We've managed to block them from doing that. This is not a particularly unique organisation. As I think I said earlier, uh, this sort of bank, green bank, if you like, operates in the US, across Europe, in China, in Korea, so many other organisations, so many other jurisdictions, sorry, because we know that the banking sector is a pretty conservative industry. We know that banks are pretty slow to find themselves comfortable with lending large amounts of money to new industries, including the renewable energy industry. So a green bank like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is not designed, as some of the government ministers have said, to nurture new technologies. I mean, that, that is the work of ARENA, the Renewable Energy Agency, to help new technologies be developed and be commercialised and brought to market. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation was designed to nurture mature lending markets where often quite, you know, quite mature technologies like wind power and rooftop solar would be able to find good access to finance. Now, for the life of me, I still don't understand why Tony Abbott has such a bent against this. Uh, we've, we've heard time and time again through Senate inquiries and Senate estimates processes uh, that uh, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is actually going to earn taxpayers' money. It will actually deliver positive returns to the Commonwealth budget at a time when I can tell you the Commonwealth budget needs positive returns. But instead of being able to abolish it through legislation, it appears what Tony Abbott is trying to do is to make the job of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation nigh on impossible. What it's done through directives that it's been giving to the board, the government that is, uh, through Treasurer Joe Hockey, is it's requiring the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to deliver a higher financial return to taxpayers, while at the same time maintaining existing risk profiles and at the same time closing off access to markets like the wind sector and rooftop solar sector. Now, anyone from the finance industry will tell you that that's just nigh on impossible. Mm. Well, look, uh, I don't really know what to say about that. A lot of people are saying it's ideology that perhaps the Liberals are sort of persuaded by, you know, overseas think tanks like the Heartland Foundation or IPA here. Um, I certainly saw you on several platforms talking about the renewable energy target and thank you very much for you know going around the country talking about in defence of the renewable energy target and Christine Milne and Bill Shorten were there and often there was an empty chair on the stage of the local... Usually mem- because the local Liberal MPs were banned from attending them. Huh. Yes, but, but been- it seemed like they were scared of, of yeah. saying anything about renewable energy. It's ridiculous. It's as if they are running scale being told to be run, you know, to be frightened of this. It's been great talking to you, Vivian. Oh, I have one more question. Can I just ask you that? Yes. Look, the people I interview vote for all sorts of parties and they are defending the land and water against coal, coal seam gas, and climate change has created new alliances, but they all say to me how they expect government to protect them. 
to protect our water and land, and they are shocked at the corruption and revolving doors between Parliament and mining companies. They are not alone. There was a court case in the Netherlands recently which ordered the government to reduce its carbon emissions to protect the Dutch citizens and future citizens not yet born. So what are you doing to protect us? Well, we introduced the water trigger while we were in government to require for the first time uh, Commonwealth approval for projects that would impact on uh, groundwater supplies in particular. Now, it, it always struck me as bizarre that the Commonwealth did not include our groundwater, our precious groundwater resources, as a matter of national environmental significance, but we made that change to the legislation. And what we've also done um, with that legislation is to prevent, legally prevent or prohibit the Commonwealth from handing over that protection power to states uh, because we are uh, we take the view very strongly as a matter of principle that the Commonwealth should retain responsibility for protecting matters of national environmental significance, including the water trigger when confronted with large coal mine or coal seam gas developments. Now, the government keeps trying to get the parliament to hand over that power to state governments. And we know that there have been very significant concerns raised about the development and the approval processes that happen around these developments at state government level. Mm. So this is not a party political point. As a matter of principle, no matter what the political colour of a state government might be, the Labor Party will oppose the water trigger being handed over to state governments, be they Labor or Liberal state governments, because as a matter of principle, we strongly hold the view that the Commonwealth should keep that protection. All right. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, you can hear uh, the Honourable Mark Butler tonight, listeners on Q&A, and also next Saturday at 9.30am. I think you're speaking at the Save Solar Forum, is that right? That's right. Okay. Thank you very much for speaking to us, Mark. Thanks, Vivian. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and tonight's program has been about the war on renewables. If you'd like to hear any more about that... Go to the ALP Fringe events on Friday, Saturday and Sunday this weekend if you're in Melbourne. It's at the Melbourne Convention Centre on South Bank. Mark Butler and John Grimes will be speaking there at 9.30am in a solar forum. There's also a session called Climate Change and the Pacific at 1.30 on Sunday and I hope we'll be able to report to you a bit more next week about that. Thank you to the Australian Solar Council's CEO, John Grimes, for appearing on the show tonight. Also, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation's CEO, Oliver Yates, and also the Labor Party Shadow Environment Minister, Mark Butler. I am sure they would love to hear from you. There really is a battle on as we try to get Australia in line with the parts of the world that are taking strong action on climate change. Why don't you take some strong action by dropping them a line or phoning their office? It's a culture war and they need to hear from you. You might also like to attend some of those solar forums uh, if you go to the solar uh, Australian Solar uh, for um, what's it called the Australian Solar Council's website, they will notify you of these this mobilisation of forums in marginal seats that you know towards the next election will perhaps shift opinion uh, and may even shift the government. We want to hold our heads up at the Paris climate meeting and to go there with strong intentions. Next week we'll hear more from the ALP conference, and uh, I hope that uh, you are committed to this and that you give us some feedback. Thanks tonight to the team, Jane on panel, 
Miwa and Roger on podcasts and Teddy for promotions. Now stay tuned for Save Albert Park.